Christians have a long history of coming up with metaphors to talk about sin and its effects. Saint Augustine famously described sin's entrance into human history as the fall, a metaphor which makes us think of sin as a, as a fall away from an original condition of justice and righteousness. And that metaphors continue to be very popular. Most of us know what someone's referring to when they speak of the fall. But it's not the only way of talking about it. One of the best books I've read about sin is by a theologian named Cornelius Plantinga. And his preferred way of describing sin is by referring to it as a vandalism of shalom. In the Bible, he explains, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. That's how God designed the world. And we saw that last week in our reading of the first two chapters of Genesis. The world was created to be a place of flourishing and wholeness and delight. And because of sin, it's not. Because of sin, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. At least that's how Cornelius Plantinga puts it. Still, there are also other ways to describe how sin has affected creation. One modern Catholic theologian describes the damage that sin has done to the world by referring to the world after sin simply as the devastation. Traces of the cosmos's surprising beauty remain, he says. But for the most part, the world appears to human creatures as it is, saturated in blood violently shed, an ensemble of inanimate creatures decaying toward extinction, a theater of vice and cruelty. I, I think that all three of those metaphors, the, the fall, the vandalism of shalom, the devastation, they're all helpful and they all capture something very true about what sin is and what it's done to the world. But I think that my favorite metaphor for talking about the, the entrance of sin is one that was coined by a French philosopher and sociologist by the name of Jacques Ellul. The phrase that he liked to use when talking about sin, when sin comes into human history, is the great rupture. I like that because it calls attention to the fact that when sin came into the world, not only did it fundamentally break creation, it was a rupture, it broke something. Not only did it disrupt the created order, it also brought with it a, a division, a rupture in relationships, a rupture in the relationships of human beings with one another, with God and, and with the rest of creation. In this session, we're going to spend some time thinking about that great rupture and what we learn about it in that famous story of Adam and Eve eating forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. The story is found in Genesis chapter 3, which begins rather suddenly by introducing us to a new character, the serpent. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. Interestingly, Genesis itself tells us very little about this serpent. 
Elsewhere in scripture, in passages such as Revelation chapter 12, elsewhere we're told that this serpent is none other than the one who is called the devil or Satan, the same one who tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, the same one who, as the apostle Peter says, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour and destroy the people of God. He is the adversary. But here in Genesis 3, he appears in the form of a snake. And the only thing that's said about him is that he is shrewd. He is crafty. And this stands in contrast to the man and woman. In fact, there's actually a little Hebrew wordplay in the description of this serpent. The word for crafty here is the word arum. And it sounds very similar to the word that's used in the previous verse when Genesis says that the man and woman are naked, arumim. Their nakedness represents their innocence. But that innocence, that arumim, is about to be destroyed by the arum, the craftiness and deceit of this serpent. Anyway, so the serpent asks Eve a question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Of course, when you read Genesis, you know that this isn't what God said because it was just 10 verses prior in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. That's where we read God telling Adam that he could eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam has apparently communicated that command to Eve. How well? We're not sure, but he's communicated it to her because she corrects the serpent. And she says, no, that's not what God actually said. What God actually said is you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So there you go. The serpent misquoted God and Eve sets him straight. Or does she? Actually, if you pay attention, you'll notice that the woman herself misquotes God's command in two very important ways. First, she adds a stipulation to the command. God had told Adam not to eat of the tree, but Eve for some reason says that God also forbade them from touching it. Not only that, not only does she add this stipulation about touching, she also lessens the consequence. Now, this isn't quite as noticeable in English translation, but, but it is very noticeable in the original Hebrew. Because you see, when God gave Adam that commandment in chapter 2, he uses a, a, a rare and a rather odd grammatical verb form, uh, uh, something that's often referred to as an infinitive absolute by grammarians. And basically, it's it's when you add an infinitive form of the verb, to die, to the main verb, you shall die. Mot to moot is the Hebrew. To die, you shall die. Well, like I said, it's, it's rather odd, but in Hebrew, it's used to give a special added emphasis, which is why in English, it's often translated as, you shall surely die, mot to moot. But Eve does not repeat that. She actually uses a very different verbal form, one that's much less emphatic. 
According to Eve, God doesn't promise you shall surely die. He just, he just gives a warning, lest you die. Now, you might think that that detail doesn't really matter. I'm making too big of a deal of it. But when Eve says that, the serpent seizes on what she said, and then he actually contradicts God outright. He uses the exact same verbal form that God had originally used. Lo, motzamut, you will not surely die. Now, so the serpent obviously knew exactly what God told Adam. And as soon as Eve stumbles, he uses it to try to deceive her and get her to question God. Because what does the serpent say next? He tells Eve that God knows the fruit won't kill her, but God just doesn't want her to eat it because, well, really because he's jealous. And he wants to keep all that God-like knowledge to himself. So the woman eats, and then she gives it to the man, and he eats. And then comes the rupture. And before we talk about the consequence of the man and woman's actions, though, we should pause and ask the question, why did they do what they did? What motivated them to disobey? St. Augustine says that it was pride. In their, in their pride, they wanted to be like God. They wanted to be their own creators. And Augustine says you can see their pride, actually, in the way that they later blame each other. Even worse and more damnable is the pride, he says, which seeks refuge in an excuse even when the sins are plain to see. The woman's pride blames the serpent. The man's pride blames the woman. Now, other early Christians, such as St. Irenaeus of Lyon, they said that what made, motivated Adam and Eve wasn't so much pride as impatience. God had created them in his image and he had made them to grow over time into his likeness. But they didn't want that. They didn't want to wait. They were impatient. So they grabbed the fruit. They ate it as quick as they could. And I think both Augustine and Irenaeus are insightful and they both might be correct. Perhaps there was a mixture of pride and impatience in their hearts. But I don't think that that's the only reason they sinned. At the end of the day, I think that this isn't just an instance of pride or impatience, but also unbelief. You see, what the serpent did was to call into question not only the truth of what God had said, but also who God is. Is he really good? Is this creator God really telling you the truth? What if he doesn't really love you? What if, what if he just cares about holding on to his own power? The serpent sowed the seed of doubt into their hearts. He called their faith, their trust in God into question, and it worked. And the consequences, as we see, were terrible. Adam and Eve, they don't physically die on the day that they eat the fruit, but they do undergo what the Apostle Paul later refers to as a spiritual death. And they're banished from the source of life, the tree of life in the garden. And not only that, there is a, an immediate rupture that occurs in their relationships. And you can see it 
As soon as they eat and their eyes are open, as soon as they do that, what do they do? They cover themselves. And never before had they felt a need to cover their nakedness. Remember, that was their innocence. Never before had they felt shame. In fact, Genesis 2 verse 25 tells us explicitly that they were naked and unashamed. But sin makes them feel shame. And for the very first time, they hide themselves. And they hide themselves from each other. And then right after that, God comes to visit them. And they don't only cover themselves to hide from each other. Then they also hide from God. And then when God begins to question them, the man blames the woman. And not just the woman. Did you notice how he phrases his response to God's questions? The woman, Adam says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, not only does this show a widening rupture between Adam and Eve, he's throwing her under the bus, he's taking no responsibility whatsoever for failing to remind her of exactly what God had said when she didn't quote it correctly, despite being the one to whom God had spoken. What's more, Adam is also blaming God. And he's showing that he doesn't really trust God anymore. You gave her to me, he says. You, you said she was a gift. But look what she did. Shame, fear, mistrust, resentment. It all begins with that moment of unbelief. And now as God tells Adam and Eve, it's going to change everything. Work will no longer be joyful in life-giving. Children will now come with pain. And the, the, the shameless and the carefree love that the man and woman once experienced, that intimacy will now be corrupted and infected by shame and by conflict. Sin has entered into human history. It's vandalized the, the shalom of the garden. It has brought devastation and rupture. And as you read on in Genesis over the next couple chapters, you see just how bad things become. Adam and Eve, they're, they're at odds with each other after eating the fruit. But their hostility is nothing compared to what happens with Cain. Now, he's envious of his little brother Abel. And he, he's angry at the honor that Abel receives. And just like with Adam and Eve, God speaks to him. He speaks to Cain and he warns him that sin is crouching at the door and sin is waiting and wanting to devour him. But Cain doesn't listen. He just goes ahead and he murders his little brother. And then he has to flee. This great rupture is widening. It rips the first family apart. There's grief at the death of a son and the loss of another. And then things just get worse and worse. Adam and Eve, they, they felt shame because of their sin, but their descendant, Lamech, whom we read about in chapter 4, he feels no shame whatsoever. He seems to, to revel in his own depravity and violence, to take pride in it. And by the time that we get to chapter 5, which is the first of several genealogies we encounter in the book of Genesis, 
the, the deadly effects of sin are very clear. When you read the genealogy in Genesis 5, the first thing that you'll probably strike you is just how long these earliest human beings were living, these enormous lifespans. But the thing that the author seems to be emphasizing the most is not their long lives, but the fact that they all die. And he died. And he died. And he died. That's the phrase that gets repeated over and over again in Genesis 5. God, remember, God told Adam and Eve that disobedience would bring death. They didn't listen. But in Genesis 5, we see that's exactly what happened. And yet, all of that being said, these chapters, they're not devoid of hope. As tragic as all of this is, Genesis gives us some clues already that God has not abandoned his creatures. Hope is not lost. Notice, for instance, that in chapter 5, not every single person who is mentioned dies. There is one man, a man named Enoch, the son of Jared and the father of Methuselah. Now, we know almost nothing about Enoch except that he walked with God. But we don't even know exactly what that means. It's a phrase that will later be used with reference to Noah, and it, it seems to describe some kind of friendship or companionship with God. But whatever it means, it does give some hope. The rupture hasn't entirely destroyed humanity's relationship with God. One man still walks with him. And Enoch lives 365 years, and then God takes him. And that's not the only hopeful note. Genesis also contains that terrible story of Cain and Abel and goes on to describe the perverse violence of Lamech. But the conclusion of that chapter, chapter 4, contains a glimmer of hope. Eve gives birth to another son, a son whom she names Seth or Set. And Seth has a son named Enosh. And then we're told, then we're told at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Again, it seems that the effects of the fall are everywhere, but they are not entire. But perhaps the most hopeful word that we hear in these chapters comes in chapter 3, when God is describing the curses that are that are coming upon creation because of sin. And he's talking to the serpent and he's talking to the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this verse is sometimes referred to as the proto-evangelium, which is a word that means the first gospel. Because here, God is for the first time promising that even though sin and the devil have entered in, even though that will bring great suffering to humanity, that the devil will ultimately be overcome. His head will be crushed, which means he will in the end be killed. And the one who kills him will be an offspring of the woman. That is the first gospel. It's a spark of hope in what is otherwise a very dark story. Because the main theme of Genesis 3 and 4 and 5 isn't a hopeful one. The main theme is what sin is and how it came into the world and how it ruptured everything. 
And that's a story that we continue to see played out in front of us, day in and day out, in our own experiences of God, of work, of social life, even in our relationships with those we love the most. The shalom of those is often vandalized. Shame and fear and mistrust enter in. We doubt and we sin. This story is no mere myth. The rupture is real. Thank you.